This is Famous and Gravy, a podcast about quality of life as we see it, one dead celebrity at a time. You can also play our mobile quiz app at deadoraliveapp.com. This person died 2019, age 69. He was born in Vallejo, California. His father died when he was a teenager, and his mother was a stenographer for the California Highway Patrol. A golden boy, huh? California. In the late 60s, he played for Tommy Lasorda, attended the University of Southern California, and then spent a full season with the Dodgers in 1971. George Brett. Not George Brett, but thank you for guessing a baseball player. When he retired, he moved with his family to a ranch in Meridian, Idaho. That's supposed to get easier. No, I don't. Don Drysdale? Not Don Drysdale. He had a 300 batting average in seven seasons, amassing 2,715 hits and 174 home runs during his two decades in the major leagues. I got a baseball player, but nobody like stands out for me there. I think I need at least a position if I'm going to get this. He played with the Los Angeles Dodgers in the 1974 World Series, which the team lost to the Oakland Athletics in five games. Wait, is, so he's a Dodgers, a Steve Garvey? He's alive. <laughs> it's not Steve Garvey, but we're honing in. All right. His long, solid career was overshadowed by a crushing error that cost the Boston Red Sox game six of the 1986 World Series against the Mets. I'm from Boston. I remember it was the first time I ever put my middle finger up in front of my mother. <laughs> I was so upset. Bill Buckner. Bill Buckner. Today's dead celebrity is Bill Buckner. The dreams are that you're going to have a great series and win. And uh, the nightmares are that you're going to let the winning run uh, score on a ground ball through your legs. So, <laughs> you know. Little roller up along first. Behind the back. It gets through Buckner. Here comes Knight and the Mets win it. Welcome to Famous and Gravy. I'm Michael Osborne. My name is Amit Kapoor. And on this show, we choose a celebrity who died in the last 10 years and review their quality of life. We go through a series of categories to figure out the things in life that we would actually desire and ultimately answer a big question. Would I want that life? Today, Bill Buckner died 2019, age 69. Category one, grading the first line of their obituary. Bill Buckner, an outfielder and first baseman whose long, solid career was overshadowed by a crushing error that cost the Boston Red Sox Game 6 of the 1986 World Series against the Mets, who went on to win the championship in seven, died on Monday. He was 69. Ahmet, first line of Bill Buckner's obituary. That sums up everything um, that... The fact that they have to reference this one play after this long, successful career is the entire reason we're doing this show. Yeah. I like that they said overshadowed, which implies an injustice was done. Yeah. I actually really, really like that they threw in the Mets won in Game 7. That was the thing I wanted to talk about, too. That kind of stands out. Game 6 of the 86 World Series against the Mets, comma, who went on to win the championship in 7. They're reporting on a sports score from... 35 years ago. And I think they wanted to make sure that history doesn't remember that Bill Buckner lost the World Series 
for the Red Sox. There was another game after that. Yeah. Here we sit 36 years later, and probably a lot of people think that was the end of the World Series. So, okay, I think we have to pause here and explain, because there's a, a story. Yeah, there is a portion of the audience that they hear the name Bill Buckner, and they're like, oh, all right, you guys are doing Buckner. That's funny. And then there's another portion of the audience is like, I have no idea who this person is. So the first line of the obituary gets at the story pretty good. There was a crushing error that cost the Boston Red Sox game six of the World Series. There's still a tremendous amount of context missing from this obituary because you just can't do it justice. Yes, unless you've seen it or were a part of it or somehow know the history of baseball at that time. And that's the thing. You say history of baseball. It's almost like maybe one of the biggest sports stories of all time. Right. If you look at the great franchise stories, there is no example of a more long-suffering franchise than the Boston Red Sox. They won the World Series in 1918 with Babe Ruth. The next year, they sold Babe Ruth to the Yankees and never won the World Series again. They called that the curse of the Bambino, the Bambino being Babe Ruth. That was the reason for their suffering. So in that 86-year history, this moment when Bill Buckner is at the center of this error— may be the single lowest point in that 86-year-long story. Yes. This is the fourth time they've made it to the World Series. They've been there in 46, 67, and 75, suffered crushing defeats in all of those World Series appearances. 1986. All right, now the World Series opens. The Red Sox win the first two games against the favored Mets at Shea. The Mets come back, win games three and four at Fenway. Bruce Hurst notches his second victory of the series and wins game five. That sets the stage with the Red Sox up three games to two, entering game six at Shea Stadium. The Red Sox are winning. If they win game six, they win the World Series. They are up in the bottom of the 10th, five to three. There are two outs, so they only need one more out. The Mets get a couple of base hits. They bring it to 5-4. They call in a new pitcher. There's a wild pitch suddenly. The game is tied, and then Mookie Wilson is at bat, and he hits a ground ball to the first baseman. Today's dead celebrity. Today's dead celebrity. The ball shockingly goes through his legs. Folks, it was unbelievable. An error right through the legs of Buckner. There were two on, nobody out, a single by Carter, a single by Mitchell, a single by Ray Knight. A wild pitch, an error by Buckner, three in the ninth for the Mets. They've won the game six to five, and we shall play here tomorrow night. Then the Mets win game seven, and the Boston Red Sox are crushed once again, but at a sort of like new level of being crushed. And Bill Buckner becomes the center of the story. He is crucified. He is crucified. And in fact, there are some sample articles and headlines that I pulled in the days and weeks following game six, just to give you an idea of what it was like. So here's one quote. Bill Buckner has just limped off the field, carrying the weight of the world on his back. He can ice those aching ankles all night so he can play in Game 7 of the World Series tonight, but there isn't enough ice to freeze the pain in his heart. Here's another quote. The ghosts of World Series past of seven game losses in 1946 and 67 and 75 wrapped their cold fingers around the Red Sox throats Saturday night and choked the life out of what the people of Boston had been calling, quote, the possible dream. 
Here's a quote from Buckner himself after the Mets have won the World Series. Monday, I agreed to do an interview for the NBC Nightly News, and all the guys kept asking me was, how can you look at yourself in the mirror? How can you face your teammates? Hey, Boston, hold your head up. You gave it your best shot and came up a buck short. A buck short. A buck short. People just remember that as the reason that the Red Sox lost the World Series, although there were plenty of errors before that. There was lots of arguments to be made that even if he made that put out, it wouldn't have ended anything. It's like the Zapruder film. Like, this gets dissected by a thousand different angles of what exactly happened, how did this happen. It's overanalyzed to death. And also, there was the prophecy. Which is astonishing, right? Yeah, yeah, I can't believe we haven't even mentioned that. I mean, that's the thing, man. It's so hard to do justice to, like, this entire story. story. The entire story that 17 days before... You know, the World Series is like, yeah, the dream is that you're going to knock one out of the park, and the nightmare is that a ball's going to go between your legs, you know, on a ground out. It's just exactly what happened. The nightmare. Yeah, I mean, it, it does feel to the fan base and to people who follow sports like something supernatural is involved. Like the things that conspire in this moment to make it, you know, so dramatic. And so 86 years, you have to be aware of a decades-long story to interpret, you know, this one baseball error. Okay, so let's get back to the first line of the obituary. Long, solid career overshadowed by a crushing error. The Sox lose in Game 7. The guy dies. It's kind of funny because they're also saying, uh, we're going to go ahead and continue to overshadow this long-storied career by highlighting this one moment in the first line of the obituary. Because you have to. Culture created this monster of a story. Yeah. So I got my score. I think it's a 10 out of 10. It's perfect. A little bit has been my evolution on what the first line of the obituary should be. There are times when I want it to encompass the entire story of an individual. There are other times where it should be like, what is the single most important or memorable thing about them? You know, they do say long, solid career here and overshadowed by this one moment that you and I are going to talk about what that means. I, I, I cannot find fault with this. this yeah, is- so I'm, I'm not going to agree with you fully. I do like that they pointed out that there was a Game 7 after Bill Buckner's error in Game 6. Yeah. That was a classy thing to do. However, I think... There was an opportunity that was missed to change the narrative of the overshadowing. So they could have perhaps said whose long career was unfairly overshadowed by this one error. Yes, I agree with you, but I'm not sure it's their call to make. I unfortunately think you're right. But as I like did all the research over the last few weeks preparing for this episode, I was very emotional yeah. on just how unfair this story is. And I guess I'm looking for redeemers out there, but I just kind of wanted a hero to shine and come out and do it. <laughs> Who may be unfairly. Yeah, or someone that's just like willing to throw away their career Jerry Maguire style yeah. and just say, this is it. I'm putting an end to the Buckner story. I'm just going to live with that fiction and I'm only giving it a seven. A seven? Wow, you're talking at three points for not sort of... They pulled at some heartstrings for me over this last week. Okay, well, I stand by my 10. Okay. I think they did their job here. 
I just want to ask, like, you have been wanting to do this episode yes. for a very long time. I guess why it was so interesting to me is that we're going to approach the Vanderbeek. We're going to talk about somebody who's a professional athlete, which is something that is, you know, every child uh, aspires to be. Yeah. But is reduced to one single thing and one awful thing. Yeah. To me, that's a huge lingering question when you get to whether you would want that life or not. I do think our show is a different take on a biography. That so many biographies are, what was this person's impact? What did they mean? How do we, you know, understand their place in history? And I do think that what we are doing here is, what would it have been like to have been them? Yeah. And that is a provocative question when it comes to Bill Buckman. I think this is kind of our reverse Neil Armstrong episode. So Neil Armstrong is all about one moment of achieving landmark history, mm-hmm. of having the entire world focused on him in a good way, and this is the opposite. Yeah, no, this is about a gaffe, and this is about an infamous gaffe. Uh, category two, five things I love about you. Here, Amit and I work together to come up with five reasons why we love this person, why we want to be talking about them in the first place. Okay, I'm going to say excellence against all odds. Okay. His father died when he was a teenager. Yeah. Do you know how he died? No. His father killed himself. Oh. When he was 14 years old. Jesus, his father I didn't an, see that. Yeah, yeah. His fa- it was showed up in one of the documentaries that I saw. And you can see Bill get, you know, emotional. pretty emotional about it. His father was an alcoholic, was a rough man. And you just stop the narrative there, and you can have a very jacked up life of anybody. Yeah. To go on and become a supreme athlete is... Beyond remarkable. Yeah. And that was his outlet to dealing with that toughness of his childhood was sports. And he was exceptional at both baseball and football. I saw that in junior year of high school, he batted a 667. So that means every two out of three at-bats, he got a hit. Wow. I mean, that is insane. Those yeah. are like beyond video game numbers. So you remove this one moment in history and the things that he amassed over that time. He had a batting title, meaning you have the highest batting average in the league. He led the league in doubles once. He finished his career with over 2,700 hits. He actually has some amazing fielding awards, which is the irony of this whole thing. He broke the record for assists, which is basically making an out if a ground ball is hit to you at first base or a fly ball. And he still holds it at number two. So, I mean, long and storied career here. You remove this moment, and he had a great career as a professional athlete. Absolutely. How did you put it, this thing, number one? What was your I said excellence against all odds. It's not hard to sign off on that. I love that. Uh, Excellence against all odds. Can I take number two? Yes. When he moved away from Boston in the 90s, because the heat had gotten so tremendous, his Son was being bullied. He's getting, you know, jeered on the streets. I mean, it sounds like his life was made to be a living hell. He moved to Idaho. So I wrote, moved to Idaho to live on a ranch. This is kind of a total tangent. I love Idaho. I think Idaho (laughs) is the single most underrated state. There's some weird culture shit there. I mean, there's like neo-Nazis in the hills. But in terms of scenic beauty and in terms of like geologic wonders, I Fucking love Idaho. Yeah. Like, I fell in love with my wife in a hot spring in Idaho. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, in college. Okay. Uh, some of my greatest camping trips are there. And and the landscape, people think potatoes when they think Idaho. Nobody seems to realize just how incredible it is. I love that that's where he went to 
live out, you know, the second half of his life once things got too bad. Takes his whole family there and has a good life. Yeah, I'm going to shoehorn one of mine in there because it, it fits with Idaho. Okay. Was the mustache. Oh, man, that was my next one. All-time mustache. Okay, so this goes— no, we can let's just agree on it as a number three. <laughs> How does that fit with Idaho? Because it just you you see these images of him in Idaho riding the horse with the hat. Yeah, it's a and the mustache man is just perfect. I mean, it looks like 1940s like John Wayne movie. It's an all-time mustache. It is an all-time mustache, which was careered. Yeah. Like I challenge you to find any image of Bill Buckner without the mustache. So it's such a baseball mustache. It too. is the total baseball mustache. Yes. Yeah. All right. Great. I love that number three. I was gonna mention that too. So I'll let you take number four. Again, from the Idaho story, great businessman. Oh. When he moved to Idaho after 1993, he became a real estate land developer. And he said he made more money doing that than he ever did playing professional baseball. He developed subdivisions and retail lots. Like one interview I saw him doing, he was working on a deal with Albertsons. Yeah. But he apparently crushed it out there. Really? And he was also coaching Little League, and yeah. he did some back and forth, even professional hitting coaching while he was living this real estate land development life in Idaho, but it looks like he crushed it. Yeah. And so kudos to you, Bill. The life in Idaho, the images you see, does look pretty desirable. Looks pretty great. Yeah. I'm going to propose this number five. I wrote forced into becoming a model of grace. Okay. Yeah? Yep. Are those the right words? And is that true? I think it's true. So let's talk about this. Okay, so... The decades pent up cultural emotion in the Boston sports scene comes crashing down on his head. And I don't even think he realizes that for a while. I mean, he gives a post game locker room interview where it's like, It's unfortunate that it happened, but that's baseball. All I can say is, uh, I've never played in the seventh game of the World Series, and I get to play one now. I'm, I hate to say it's because I missed a ground ball, but that's the way it goes. Well, I think it took even a few days for it to become catastrophic because they had to lose the whole series. Right. And then, you know, the media basically decided to make this the scapegoat and fans signed off on it. And then, you know, as time passes, it gets worse and worse. And I, this was the hardest thing for me to sort of get sunlight into. Like, what did it feel like in 1987 and 88 and 89 to be Bill Buckner? There's a lot of people saying how bad it was for him, but I wanted to try and bring it to life. The best evidence for me is how when he's in Boston in the early 90s, after he's retired from baseball, his kids start getting bullied. His four-year-old even. Like, it's one thing to get people on the street yelling at you. It's another thing to have your kids be a target. <sighs> Why was the heat so heavy on him? One, there's the Boston sports culture and this decades-long tortured fan base. I think there's also something about his name that invites ridicule. The name Buckner? Yeah, it of, does. I think I told you I have a friend who's you know older and who's a lifelong Giants fan, and he remembers when Buckner was playing with the Dodgers and was in the outfield. Fuck you, Buckner! Like, yes. And it was just like, and he said it was actually just really fun to yell that. Fucking Buckner. Like, it's just like there's something about the consonants in that name <laughs> that add to the sort of like scapegoating that happens to him. It also just sounds like a fumble. There's like an automatopoeia yeah, in, in the name Buckner. Yeah. And, and I mean, the thing is, to go back to the game in the moment itself, so first of all, he was battling injuries. 
and it's not clear that he should have been playing first base. And I think that there had been somebody else who was playing first base. This was game six. In games one, two, and five, they pulled him off the bag in the later innings because he had been hobbled by injuries. And then the Mets had already tied the game. Yes. Like, it, had he made the play, best case scenario, they go to extra innings, yes. right? Or they go to inning 11. And the next batter was Howard Johnson for the Mets, who was one of their better players. Right. So, obviously, I mean, anybody looking at this who doesn't even know baseball can say, a team is responsible for losing a game, not one man, not one error, right? Yet, somehow he gets scapegoated. Like, yes. totally scapegoated. So, to go back to my thing number five, forced into becoming a model of grace— I mean, let's let's talk about how he dealt with this. Yes. I mean, I think immediately from that very night in the locker room when you see the reporters interview him, he said, yeah, I made an error. Yeah. You know, he owned up to it. From the very first second, he did not assign blame. And I remember going into that locker room. Buckner answered every question. And there are a lot of times when we look at our athletes and we look at them and go, man, is that heroic. Boy, they were unbelievable under pressure. I'll never forget in all the things that I've covered where you're as low as you could possibly be, but to sit there and answer the questions, that's what stands out to me about Bill Buckner. That's admirable. I mean, to the extent that you want to have a conversation about one moment potentially destroying somebody's life and how do we respond to that? This is part of what makes this so interesting is this is a metaphor for our deepest fears that we're going to make some catastrophic mistake in public while all the cameras are on us. Yes. You know, and, and then, like, how would we deal with that? How he dealt with it is incredible and deserves to be called out in the five things. So that's why I wanted to put this as my fifth thing. All right, let's recap. So uh, number think, one, excellence against all odds. Number two, Idaho. Number three, Ulta mustache. Number four, good businessman. Good businessman. And, and number five, model of grace. Yes. All right, category three, Malkovich, Malkovich. This category is named after the movie Being John Malkovich, in which people can take a little portal into somebody's mind and have a front row seat to their experiences. The point is to imagine what memories or experiences might have been interesting. I think you and I are both avoiding game six of the World Series. The in actual our moment, yes. Yeah. So I'm going to try to do what... The obituary didn't. And I want to talk about his career before that. Okay. So in 1974, Hank Aaron is making his run to break Babe Ruth's home run record. Right. Bill Buckner plays for the Dodgers at the time, and he's an outfielder. Yeah. So you think about this now, and you're like, wow, this must be an incredible, exciting time in the history of baseball. And it was. It probably was the biggest moment in baseball in decades. Yeah. There was a lot more to the story, though. And Hank Aaron, a black man, when you're only decades after integration of and Jackie Robinson, the and sport, so yeah, he was getting threatened an insane amount leading up to breaking Babe Ruth's record. So some of the things I read, he received more mail, period, than anyone else in the United States that year. These are all death threats. Okay. Okay. The writer for the Atlanta Journal said that they had a pre-written obituary at the time for Hank Aaron in case he gets murdered. Wow. Hank Aaron slept at the stadium with security detail during this run-up to breaking the record because there was just so many people out there to get him. Yeah. Babe Ruth's widow 
made like a public plea to say, let this go. Like Babe Ruth would want this to happen. So lo and behold, here comes home run number 715, the Braves against the Dodgers. And in 1974, on April 8th, who does Hank Aaron hit his home run towards? It is Bill Buckner. So that ball sails over Bill Buckner's head and is about to land in the bullpen to be a home run. Bill Buckner, there's a clip of this on YouTube, and we will show notes it. He literally climbs the fence and half of his body like tilts over in trying to catch that home run. One ball and no strikes. Aaron waiting. The outfield deep and straight away. Fastball is a high drive into deep left center field. Buckner goes back to the fence. It is gone. This is what is remarkable about it. Number one, Bill Buckner was the last person to lay eyes on this ball before it went in and became a home run. That is history. That itself is a Malkovich moment. Mm. Secondly, he tried his damnedest to, to catch that ball. He was playing the game, and what you do to play the game is you make a play as hard as you can and you bust your ass to do it. But then to also have the gall to climb the fence and still try to rob the home run makes it a double Malkovich moment. Yeah. I love it. All right. I'm Malkovich. Okay. All right. I think you know what this is. Season eight of Curb Your Enthusiasm, Bill Buckner has a what is actually a really famous cameo. So the story in the episode is Larry is playing on a softball team, and he gets distracted during a key moment in the game. The ball goes between his legs. Yes! You got it, Larry! Here it comes! Oh, you got it! You got it! What the fuck? What? You bucknered me! Unbelievable. You fucking bucknered it! Sorry. So then later on in the episode, Larry's been asked to get a signed ball of Mookie Wilson, who is the favorite player of one of his friends. And he goes and he knows Mookie is doing a signing and he goes to the signing with Mookie Wilson. And there's Mookie Wilson with Bill Buckner signing autographs together. Yes, co-signing pictures of that play in 1986. Right. The way the story goes in the episode, I mean, they walk out together. Larry gets to know Bill Buckner a little bit. People are jeering him in the streets. Uh, later, they are witness to a fire in an apartment building. This woman, who is very desperate, throws a baby out the window, and it bounces and f off the fire. What do you call that? The, fire, the trampoline The thing. trampoline thing that the firemen have. And Bill Buckner makes an incredible catch to save the baby. And he's hoisted on people's shoulders, and he's cheered. And it's this kind of incredible redemption. Oh, oh, I don't see anything like that in my life. Nice catch, Bill. Oh, my God. My Malkovich is actually a little bit more specific. Larry David said there is a version of this script where Buckner drops the baby. Yes. <laughs> Buckner had to know there was this alternative ending to this episode where he drops the baby. Now, and Larry David said he's really glad he went with the the version where Buckner catches the baby because he said it made him emotional. It's redemptive, even though it's more hilarious to have him drop the baby. Yes. Here's why it's a Malkovich moment. One, I think that the willingness to go on that show, play yourself, confront these demons, and have a kind of like catharsis through fiction is incredible. But then that it was even proposed, well, does he drop or catch the baby? Like, 
says something about how this moment is even today being understood. And because there's a little bit of a, how we understand entertainment overall happening in this moment, that what happened in 1986 was real life playing out, even though sports is an entertainment product. And then Curb Your Enthusiasm is scripted. That we like get a chance to rewrite history or at least rewrite somebody's story through fiction and how how that would have felt for him. So I want to know. I want to be behind the eyes. I was so desperate to do that show. I loved that episode. He, he didn't want to do it at first. I really had to stay on the phone with him and uh, he had to think about it. And then his daughter was, was an actress. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, well, you know, we could put your daughter on the show too. And I think when I offered that, the quid pro quo. The quid pro quo. So you pro quote him. I quote him, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's taking as much as he can. Like, he's aware at this point that the narrative is never going to change. He knows he's not going to rewrite the narrative, and this just goes back to the grace. The fact that he just did it for his daughter is, I don't know, speaks volumes. It does. All right, let's pause. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Mary Tyler Moore. I think dead. The rules are simple. Dead or alive. She died in 2017. William the Refrigerator Perry. I think the fridge died. The fridge is still alive. Author Jackie Collins. Alive? (laughs) We lost her in 2015, I'm afraid. Willie D. I'll take a hint on this one. Willie D is a ghetto boys rapper. Alive. Willie D is still with us at 55 years old. Wow. He's good. Yeah, he's good. Test your knowledge. Deadoraliveapp.com. Hey, Famous and Gravy listeners. There's a podcast I want to tell you about called Dismembering Horror. It's hosted by Ryan McDuffie and Tim Aslan. And on each show, they choose a horror film and they break down what did and didn't work 
there's something about a horror movie where there's always something to talk about. It's a unique format where you really learn a lot about filmmaking, and it sort of just captures the spirit of what it's like to walk out of a horror movie and sit around having drinks with your friends and breaking it down. I was actually on a recent episode and had a ton of fun talking to these guys. So Dismembering Horror with Ryan McDuffie and Tim Aslan. Highly recommend it. Category four, love and marriage. How many marriages? Also, how many kids? And is there anything public about these relationships? Okay, this is, in a way, kind of simple. One marriage to Jody, 1980 to 2019. Bill was 31 or so. They had three children, two daughters and one son. The son is a baseball player. Played yeah, did at, he make it to the pros? I know he, he played did. college. He, he played at UT for the Longhorns. Oh, really? Yeah, I saw he played uh, briefly for the Cubs. It wasn't clear to me if that was a farm team or if he actually made it to the pros. We mentioned the bullying of his son was a major reason that they moved out of Boston. And then you, we already mentioned that there was a kind of quid pro quo in him supporting his daughter. So I think that there's like some signs that he stuck up for his kids. Yeah. There's also, to get back to the marriage, because I was really curious about her. And I couldn't find a ton, but there is one ESPN short where she's interviewed pretty extensively. And there's some telling pieces in that. She uses the word we in a way that, like, really signals solidarity. Yes. It's like, this is what we went through, and this is— She also has, I think, a very telling moment. You mentioned a second ago forgiveness. When Buckner returns to Boston in 2008, this is after the Sox have won their second World Series— the thing that upset me going back there was seeing signs in the stand that said, you're forgiven, we forgive you. Because the truth is, we don't need forgiveness. And we didn't go there seeking forgiveness because we have nothing to be forgiven for. We needed to forgive. And I think we have. She seemed like a badass. I really loved her, like the way that she talked about these instances. She always just seems to stride to the defense of us as a family unit and really just putting him on a pedestal of being an honorable man and a great father and putting every decision made at what is best for the family. Yeah. My read on the little I got was great marriage. Looks like a great family. They're in Idaho. Pretty cool. I want to say something. I don't know if this belongs right here, but about that moment of the 2008 first pitch. So the press conference that was afterwards... They asked him, you know, did you have any doubts about doing this? He makes this point saying that, like, well, what did you have to do to get here? Yeah. And he chokes up and tears up. This is a 60-year-old man. Yeah. And says, like... All right. I, I, I really had to forgive the... the not, not, the, not the fans of Boston, just per se, but I, I, would, I would have to say... In my, in my heart, I had to forgive the media. Uh, uh, you know, for what, you know, they put me and my family through. I'm over that. But it's hard to do. It's hard to do. It took, what, 20 years or 21 years. And it was in that moment that I really realized, like, how terrible this whole thing was. Yeah. To me, that spoke everything about how awful it must have been. So high scores for family life for Bill Buckner. Really high marks. Category five, net worth. I saw eight million. Does that seem a little low to you? 
No, I don't think so. They said that he made about $3 million throughout his whole um, baseball playing career. Okay. He said he made more as a land developer. He said he made enough money doing the Mookie Wilson autographs to send his kids to college. Yeah. It's pretty solid, but these were before the big salary days. Yeah. Like that, by Malkovich moment, that Hank Aaron home run, he said that that ball initially, the actual ball that landed, uh, sold, I think, for $30,000. Oh, I bet it goes for a lot more these days. Oh, it must be near a million. Yeah. But he said that he didn't even make $30,000 that year. So um, this was before you made that kind of money in sports. Yes. And certainly before there were endorsements the way we've had them, you know, from the 1980s onward. Yeah. And here's another funny statistic about ball values is the Bill Buckner ball has been sold around a few times. One of the first to buy it was Charlie Sheen. I saw that. Who paid $93,000 for it. And Bill Buckner made a comment, was like, if I knew that ball was worth $100,000, I would have just turned around and grabbed it. <laughs> yeah, shit. But hey. let's, let's go back to the $8 million. It seems like quality of life-wise in terms of wealth and luxury seemed pretty good. Yeah. I like, like that pretty- number. I, I, $8 million is a very comfortable and great number to me. Yes. An interesting thing is baseball salaries are all public, right? Yeah. What people make. And his salary gradually went down every year after that 86 World Series. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, next category. Simpsons Saturday Night Live or Halls of Fame. This is a category is a measure of how famous a person is. We include both guest appearances as well as impersonations. So, shockingly, on SNL, I saw nothing. Saw nothing. I really looked for this. Really? Um, I would have thought there had been like a... At least something in Weekend Update. Exactly, a Weekend Update joke. The one interesting note that I heard was that when the Mets actually won the series in 1986, it was one of the few times and maybe the only time that they ran a taped version at Saturday Night Live. It was not live that year. Well, they had to cancel the actual showing of that night of October 26th that he made the error. Is that what happened? Okay. I think so, because it ran so late. Okay, I see. So anyway, the game interferes with Saturday Night Live, but I didn't see any mention or impersonation of Buckner, which sort of surprised me. On The Simpsons, similarly, I didn't see a lot. I found one very obscure reference. There's an episode where Bart is prescribed something called Focusin. It's sort of a joke on Ritalin. Okay. Um, and he starts exhibiting a lot of unusual behavior. He's like a lot nicer to his parents, and he gets Marge a gift. And Homer says, did I get a card? And Bart says, no, but here's a book called Chicken Soup for the Loser that gave Bill Buckner the courage to open up a chain of laundromats. It's the only reference I saw to Bill Buckner in all of The Simpsons. It's a sort of throwaway joke. So that's it that I saw in The Simpsons. And then in terms of Halls, I never saw him on Arsenio Hall, unsurprisingly. And he got a few votes for the Baseball Hall of Fame, but did not make it in. Yeah, and there is that question of, you know, had there not been that play and had his career been as storied as it was before, he probably would have been on that trajectory. I think that this actually... Tracks. I think that if you know baseball, you know the name Bill Buckner. And if you don't, you may not have ever heard it. This is a different kind of celebrity. It's slightly different. I think you're not going to know it, but I think you've heard it without realizing it. That's true. As a reference that you just didn't even know. So some of the other examples, in addition to the Simpsons Saturday Night Live and SNL, there was an episode of Boy Meets World in 1999 where his father is, is like speaking on career day and he's very embarrassed about his father's job being a grocer, and so the kid goes to the lunchroom and is talking to his friend, and he says, do you remember that guy that made the error in the World Series 
against the Mets and let the ball go through his legs. And his friend says yes. And he goes, I would rather be his son. That's how embarrassed I am. I mean, uh, that is how his name gets used is as a punchline. Yes, it's totally. This is the Urban in, Dictionary thing. It was in Rounders, speaking of a John Malkovich movie. Yeah. This is one of the oddest that I came across. So in 2008, the economic meltdown mm-hmm. that we have, Alan Greenspan, chair of the Federal Reserve, said that he made three Buckners that year. <laughs> uh, wow. There is a bridge in Massachusetts that um, kind of resembles a pair of legs, and you drive under it, and it's called it's nicknamed the Buckner Bridge. I've heard of that. There's all sorts of these things. You can go on Twitter right now and just search the name Bill Buckner, and at least five to ten times a day, somebody is making some remark yeah, I mean, about how someone made a Buckner. I mean, it's interesting because it's got a massive inside joke quality to it, right? And I think it gets back to the name itself has a kind of like punchline element to it, Buckner, Yeah, you know? But I think this is one instance that, you know, they say any PR is good PR. This is one of disagreement. I could not agree more with that. All right, category seven, over under. In this category, we look at the generalized life expectancy for a year somebody was born to see if they beat the house odds and as a measure of grace. Man born in 1949 in the U.S., life expectancy 73.2 years. Buckner died at 69, so he's under. And died of Lewy body dementia, which I didn't know much about. This is the second most common form of dementia after Alzheimer's. Pretty similar in symptoms to Parkinson's. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. So the family said long-suffering when they issued statements after his death. They didn't say when he was diagnosed, so... That appearance on Curb is 2010 or 11, something like that. Yes. I didn't see any pictures, videos, anything from 2011 to 2019 when he died. So I think that there's a pretty big question mark about the final years. About how much suffering there was. Correct. And 69's young. 69 is very young, especially for an athlete. Yeah. And who was fit. I mean, the, the man, even when he was 60-something years old, doing Curb Your Enthusiasm. He looked good. Very much. So, uh, you know, we talked about Casey Kasem in episode 10, and that was Louis Body Dementia. And those were terrible final years. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. And the thing is, is that the Buckner family just needs so much privacy, which is why we don't have tremendous insight. But I'd speculate it was an awful end. So here's where I think we're at so far in this episode. You look at the knowable information about the guy. Everything points to a very desirable life. There are now, I think, two things that would make this life undesirable. One is having to deal with the reality of this moment, which we'll continue to talk about. The other is the nature of his death, that he died fairly young and that he died from a degenerative disease where, you know, he's robbed of his faculties. He's robbed of his ability to think. It affects the brain, Lewy body dementia, in a way that can lead to shaking like Parkinson's. Yep. And and third, I, I think you also need to say losing your father as a teenager. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, this is getting to be a real bummer when we get to the end of this category, but I think we got to get through the life, and this is the death. Yeah. Okay. Let's pause for a word from our sponsor. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
Got your happy price, price line. Michael, are you proquarian? <laughs> no, sir. I am antiquarian. What does it mean to be antiquarian? That means relating to or dealing in antiques or rare books, which is why I am an antiquarian. Oh, because you like collecting rare books. Absolutely. And where do you find them? You just go to flea markets and scavenge the internet? Absolutely not. I go to half-price books. They have all kinds of both new and used books. It's not like you're only getting the old stuff at half-price books. They also have new, fresh books. You know, right, right, off, right, <laughs> off, right out of the oven. Including bestsellers. Including bestsellers. Right off the press. Right off the press. Half Price Books is the nation's largest new and used bookseller with 120 stores in 19 states. Half Price Books is also online at hpb.com. The first of the introspective categories is man in the mirror. What did they think about their own reflection? This is one of those instances that we actually have a direct quote. Oh, do we? So this is what I found. It says, it pained Mr. Buckner that he needed a public pardon. And this is his quote. When I looked at myself in the mirror, I perceived it differently. It's like getting accused of stealing something you didn't steal. So basically what I gather from that is he looks in the mirror and he holds his head high. He looked genuinely like a self-affirmed happy person. I mostly agree with that, although I do think that there is some evidence to the contrary. But I think we're both agree. If we're going to paint a broad stroke, I'm going to say yes. Yes, I agree. And he held his head high. I agree with that as well. All right, next category, outgoing message. Like Man in the Mirror, we want to know how they felt about the sound of their own voice when they heard it on an answering machine, and would they have left it uh, on their outgoing voicemail? I think he liked it. I got to say, I like it's it. It's a nice one. I like it. It's it's a little like thick mouth, kind of jockishness to it, you yeah. know? But I enjoy listening to it, and I think he's pretty self-assured with it. I don't think he's saying yes to a ton of interviews, but to the second part of the question, I don't think he's ashamed to be Bill Buckner, right? And so I think he would have recorded his own outgoing voicemail. Yeah, I think if you're calling for an Ohio land deal, you're going to get a, hi, you've reached Bill, please leave a message. I agree with that. Okay. Next category, regrets, public or private. What we really want to know is what, if anything, kept this person awake at night? You know, it's funny. I have nothing written down here other than the kept this person awake at night question, which is kind of obvious. Sure. The question here is how often is he replaying this moment in his mind? To me, that, that could be more of a good dreams, bad dreams. I think it is. I don't so think it's a regret. Which is why I didn't put it in my regrets. I did find a couple of regrets. So you found something. Okay, so what one, I did say that he didn't turn around and pick up the ball. Instead, Charlie Sheen paid $100,000 for it. Yeah. That's definitely one. Another thing he said is that right before they moved to Idaho, shortly before they moved, he was in Pawtucket in Rhode Island at one of the Red Sox minor league parks and... Somebody makes the same joke that, uh, hey, Bill, I would ask for an autograph, but you would drop it. And he just snapped, and he went back and grabbed the guy by the collar and almost knocked him out. He didn't. Yeah, and he said, I thank God I didn't punch him out. He uh, said he even regretted going that far, though. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that one up, that he lost his cool. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think, you know, like, he's an athlete. He's a tough guy. He's a gruff guy. Obviously, that's forgivable. Is that a regret? I mean, are you supposed to be a fucking Zen master pacifist for the rest of your life? I mean, that's a lot to ask of somebody. I think he was an accidental Zen master in one specific category. Of yeah. It. 
But that's all I got for regrets, Ahmed. I didn't see a whole hell of a lot else. Yeah, I think the key here is he didn't regret the play. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go on to the next category, good dreams, bad dreams. This is not about personal perception, but rather, does this person look haunted? Do they have something in the eye that suggests inner turmoil, inner demons, or unresolved trauma? Okay. I went bad, and I do think this moment haunts him. I do think that when he's giving interviews for the media, I think he does a very good job of presenting a sense of peace and self-acceptance. Presenting. I think this is in the Catching Hell documentary, the 30 for 30, that explores both Steve Bartman and Bill Buckner, when he sort of says casually that he's seen the play over and over once or twice a week for the last 23 years. I mean, he sort of just like casually drops, like, if you live in a house that enjoys sports and you have ESPN on in the background, you see this play over and over once or twice a week for 23 years. Yes. He's being reminded of this over and over and over again. It's not just the interview inquiries, and it's not just the people on the street saying, hey, Buckner, or whatever. And then he tells the story of, I decided to watch it, and I realized that he was criticized for not having his glove on the ground. The implication being the ball went under his glove. But he also, he says in in the 30 for 30, I had a loose glove and it actually was on the ground and I could see it in this angle and actually the ball goes to the side. It takes a sort of errant bounce or something. Something funny happened. So he's, the way I heard it in the documentary was I did the right thing in terms of being a ball player. Yep. All right. So here's why I want to draw attention to this moment. 23 years since the famous error. This, to me, is the strongest evidence that he's replaying this moment over and over in his mind. Yes. That he happens to see something different. That feels like wishful thinking to me. It's he came up with a story. He came up with a new story about it. That is how we deal with our trauma, right? I I mean, mean, that's what therapy is. Yeah, right. It's having a new relationship with our past and with our traumatic events and with the things that have caused us pain and and figuring out a way to have self-forgiveness. I think he does have some self-forgiveness there, and I think he's telling the interviewer in the 30 for 30 documentary. You know, everything was perfect, but because of that glove being so loose, it closed automatically, and... Uh, in reality, it didn't make anything any better or whatever, but it, at least in my mind, uh, you know, I knew why I missed the ball. And here he's kind of sort of trying to correct the record, and he can't change what happened, obviously, but he's trying to look at it differently and, and tell a new story. That, to me, is pretty strong evidence that he's still wrestling with it. Yeah. And that he's got bad dreams. Absolutely. And then the poor guy gets Louis body dementia after supposedly getting peace with this moment. Yeah. I'd like to think he gets some peace with Larry David. I mean, it is actually, there's a reason Larry David says that's such a great episode. It is like to see Bill Buckner catch a baby from a burning building and have everybody like put him up on their shoulders. You really do feel like something is released there, you know? And that's what Larry David was going for. Yeah, and Larry David, there was also some nice moments in that episode where Larry David like defends Bill Buckner. Hey, Buckner, you suck. Hey, have a nice day, fellas. Nice catch. (laughs) What jerks, huh? Oh, my God. How do you put up with that? Hey, just get used to it. Fuck you, Buckner. Hey! You stink! Ah, so do you! Hey, don't worry about it, Larry. You know, you're going to drive yourself crazy. Watching that episode was a delight. Yes. it It is a great one. All right, second to last category. 
coffee, cocktail, or cannabis. This is where we ask, which one would we most want to do with our dead celebrity? Now, it may be a question of what kind of drug sounds like the most fun to partake, or another philosophy is that a particular kind of drug might allow access to a part of them that you are most curious about. So he was a beer drinker. Yeah. Like, you know, even you see these people that, like, made it out to Idaho to do it. I mean, he looks like Seems like a beer drinker, yeah. He's the kind of guy you want to have a beer with. So that's what you'd enjoy, but, like, I think he's just going to talk about, like, elk hunting and land developments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think might be a little bored. So I think I'll go the cannabis with Bill Buckner, and it's going to be about resilience. Yeah. Is what I want to hear about. Not only going all the way back to age 14, but going from this incredible moment in history and living this life of th- grace. Where is that place in your mind where you find peace? That's what I want to hear from him. So I have the exact same substance for the exact same reason with just a slight tweak to it. I'm not 100% convinced he found inner peace. And I think it will remain unknowable what it means to forgive. I mean, that's ultimately what this whole thing is about, is who needs forgiveness? And his wife called it out, well, we forgive you, Boston, but what does that exactly mean? Do you forgive God? Do you forgive the world? Do you forgive the institution of sports or the Boston Red Sox or the Boston media or the Boston fan base or... Every person that's made a joke in the right. 34 I mean, years. Yeah, there's a level at which the wrong that was done here that we can all agree was done here, you know, how do you attribute responsibility to that injustice? What does that look like internally? Whether or not he achieved lasting peace, I mean, what exactly are we even talking about when we sort of set that standard? I want to know about the process of forgiveness, that it's like this is never done as something that you have to live with as part of your fate. And I think that because it's such a terrifying reality to imagine being him, I want to know what kind of insights might exist at the far ends of that processing of what happened. I'd like to think that the more challenged you are and the further you have to go, to achieve a groundedness and a forgiveness and a surrender and all of that, that the more pressure you have to respond to, the more insights there are to be had at the other end of it. Yeah. But like you, I want the cannabis. Yeah, I like your emphasis on forgiveness. I think that was better articulated than mine, but I think really that's the key of what we're after, how to understand that. All right, I think we've done what we can to get here on it. Mm Mm-hmm. We're at the Vanderbeek, named after James Vanderbeek in a very different sports environment, said, I don't want your life. Do you want Bill Buckner's life? This is a fucking interesting question, and I'm still 50-50, man. You just remove this one moment. You want to wonder from a Mr. Destiny standpoint how everything changes, but you can't. He was an incredible athlete, like I said at the very, very beginning, against terrible odds. Yeah. His family life seems incredible, like the support and really just the the mutual admiration that he seemed to have with his wife and the relationship with his own children seems remarkable. Yeah. The fact that he stood up and that the words honor and grace that you threw in, I mean, the fact that he even lived, honestly. Right. I mean, you imagine what he went through and 
It's just not hard to imagine suicidal ideation. It's not hard to imagine substance abuse. It's not hard to imagine like acting out, right? I mean, this is yeah. this is a traumatic experience. It's usually as a result of trauma, and that's this. Yes, and that's the most he regrets is almost punching someone. Yeah. He soared so far above what was set up for him and found his way out. He found peace. He said he found forgiveness. There is so much evidence of how terrible it was. So, but the question is never when it gets to the Vanderbeek, do we admire this person? On that, no, we that aren't is, agreed. The question is, do you want this? Like, would you take this? So, life? this is what I'm saying: is I want to be the type of person that could say, "Okay, I, I am admirable, yeah. and I do have honor, and I do have grace, and that's enough for yeah. me to want this life." But I think what the truth of it, Michael, is I don't. Because I don't think it's okay what they did to him, what we did to him. Despite 20, 30 years of nationwide bullying, I think it's not okay. This culture of bullying born out of sports, specifically in this instance, but I think we're talking about a larger topic. And I don't want to say I want that life because I don't want anyone out there to think it's okay. That it's okay to dehumanize somebody and crucify them and reduce them away from being a human being. That is the reason that I will not say yes to wanting Bill Buckner's life. I'm a no. I try and imagine my greatest fears. Certainly, that something terrible will happen to me. One of my greatest fears is losing a child, right? I think that's common for a lot of parents. Mm -hmm. I also think that right up there, is public humiliation. So the question of the Vanderbeek here to me is a little bit like, how much do you want to be challenged in life? I honestly don't know how to answer that Not question. that fucking much. I don't know how, exactly. There's a part of me that very much wants to be tested exactly as much as I'm able to respond to, but you don't know what you are able to respond to and what you're not. Until, you know, that calamity befalls you. There's all kinds of questions you can ask about Bill Buckner. Had this happened 10 years earlier, you know, when he's not at the tail end of his career, but at the peak of his athletic ability, would it have been different? What if he didn't have kids? What if he wasn't married at that point? And so part of me, like, is looking at this Vanderbeek question on, like, are you ready for it when it happens, you know? And I do think Bill Buckner does look like he was given what he needed to continue to live a meaningful and fulfilling life afterwards. But would you want it in the first place? No, man, I don't. I'd like to believe I'm resilient. I'd like to believe that I could live up to it, but I don't want my name being a fucking punchline. Yeah. I don't want anybody to have to be. But if given the choice of would you take it or not, despite how much I admire him and how much he responded... I'm a no, too. I mean, the honest answer is I'm a no, too. Yeah, you still have to live all that out in the present. I guess in looking at it, I'll tell you this. This is like the lesson for me here. I kind of want to like bank enough wisdom. Yeah. If something, you know, similar to this were to ever befall my fate. Yeah. Maybe the case of Bill Buckner is that he is he was sacrificed, but future generations will benefit if the right story is told in the end. It's really it's amazing how like important and unimportant certain elements of this story are. 
right? It's sports. Ultimately, it's entertainment. Ultimately, it's not important, but it's also reality. And it's also like the meaning we infuse in the metaphors that surround these stories. And I, I'm not sure that will ever be corrected. I think that there was an outpouring when he died. And you go on the internet and you find, here's five reasons Bill Buckner is not to be blamed, and so on and so forth. But I'm not sure anybody has really drawn attention to the deeper meaning of what it would have been to have been him and how he responded. Correct. I mean, if he's done anything, he made me feel remorseful over the last week. Yeah. A kid that was a baseball fan and that was rooting for the opposing team and and probably made a few Buckner jokes in the decades that followed. Yeah. I feel remorseful as fuck for that now. Dude, dude I, I gotta say, like I was I've been thinking about my own relationship to fandom, right? Like I grew up telling Aggie jokes. I see somebody wearing a University of Oklahoma jersey and I'm like, fuck that guy, right? And because yeah. I'm a Longhorns fan. We we have this disproportionate relationship to what it means to root for a team. I don't know. Some of it is a little unhealthy, you know? Yes. And obviously, and there's no better case study than that than Bill Buckner, you know? Mm-hmm. All right, so we're both no. We're both no. God, but it doesn't feel good, does it? No, it doesn't. But the point is not just to answer the Vanderbeek necessarily. The point is to talk it out and to extract the lessons and wisdom where you can. And on that score, I think we did it. Yeah. Ahmed, you are Bill Buckner. You've died. You've gone to the Unitarian proxy for uh, the afterlife, St. Peter. You're at the pearly gates. The floor is yours. All right, St. Peter, unfortunately, you don't admit on statistics alone. If you did, I would be a shoo-in. Instead, I'm here, and I have to talk about the one thing again with you. Here's why I should go in. I want people to know how well of a life I lived afterwards, that I loved my family, I loved the life I created. I stayed in the game of baseball after that play. The world thought I was burying myself, but I was not. I had dignity, honor, and grace, and I hope in the future. I want them to look back at me and say, Still try and don't be afraid of getting buried. Let me in. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Famous and Gravy. If you're enjoying our show, please tell your friends about us. Help spread the word. Find us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Famous and Gravy. And we also have a newsletter, which you can sign up for on our website, FamousAndGravy.com. Famous and Gravy was created by Amit Kapoor and me, Michael Osborne. This episode was produced by Jacob Weiss. Original theme music by Kevin Strang. Thanks for listening. See you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.